Bibles and turn to Nehemiah chapter 1 this morning. Nehemiah chapter 1. After a time of reflection with respect to our, our nation this morning, sometimes we desire to be able to do something going forward. And uh, I'd like to invite you to uh, invite maybe a neighbor or a friend, either a uh, military veteran, active service friend, somebody who's serving in the fire department, police department. We have our annual honor dinner coming up in November, and we have uh, the joy of hearing from a very high-ranking chaplain uh, who serves our country as a guest speaker, and we know that those who come will be encouraged. And uh, those little invitation cards, if you're into that sort of thing, are available back on our literature table. And uh, so I'd encourage you to avail yourself of that opportunity as we seek to be salt and light in our community, among our friends, and never underestimate uh, the work of the gospel with respect to uh, the concerns we have as fellow citizens of the United States of America. And uh, so I would want to encourage this community uh, with the gospel. So those are there and available if you'd like to uh, take them, take some of them, and be sure to distribute those. Um, we also want to let you know a little bit, uh, those of you who have been praying for Pastor Mark Mavar uh, with his surgery this past week, uh, things seem to go very well, and I believe he's recovering now. Um, I don't know if I see any of the Mavar family. I thought I saw Caleb up here for sure. Is he, I believe he's home. Is that right, Caleb? No, still not, still in the hospital? Okay, and still probably, he wasn't able to take visitors. I'm assuming we'd have to get back with you on that. He can take visitors, or he can't. Don't go unless you call the office first, all right? How's that for Providence? All right, I'm sorry, I shouldn't, didn't mean to put that pressure on you guys, but uh, let's keep praying for Mark. He's uh, uh, got quite a scar down the side of his head there, and, but uh, we believe that uh, the doctors assure us that things went well, so we're thankful for that. All right, we're considering the grand theme of providence as a carryover from last week. Last week we, we uh, handled uh, really the uh, the story of Joseph, and really two particular matters that he contributes to our understanding of our own Christian life with respect to that grand theme of providence. And um, we sort of uh, uh, formulated our thinking around our own lives. We, we asked those of you who believe you have a bit of an abnormal life to raise your hand, and some of you raised your hand to the idea that you feel like you have an abnormal life. And Joseph was certainly our representative of an abnormal life. And, and a life like you and I, a man of faith, living that faith out in a hostile Gentile reality. Um, so he was that abnormal example. If you feel like you have an ex abnormal life, uh, look to Joseph. And he taught us really two critical truths that both uh, victimhood and vengeance are really... Uh, off the table when it comes to a believer who believes, has faith in, not only the fact that God rules over our lives, but that he's ruling in and through the events of our lives. Two sides of the same coin. We observed last week that there was the concept of general providence. Remember, general providence is simply what we would call the laws of nature. God, in time past, decided it would be a good idea for humanity's feet to stay firmly planted on the terra firma. So he instituted gravity. Gravity is an expression of God's general providence, and if you believe in gravity, and if you are somebody who really appreciates it and sort of lives your life along the ideas of the concepts and principles of gravity, guess what? you will have a high possibility of flourishing. I remember painting and always having to be up on walkboards 40 feet above the air. 
It is not natural for man to be there. God's general providence is not working there. Uh, and uh, I used to rip the scriptures out of their context and say, what am I doing up here? The good book says, and lo, I am with you. And I was not low. Um, we argue that even on a, maybe a more serious note, that gender, for example, that question that's being uh, dealt with today in the ideolo ideological uh, 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 houses of America. Uh, God created gender, that those who uh, appreciate this as a function of general providence, if you live your life believing that God created your gender and all that that means and just are thankful for it, even if you don't know Jesus, you have a higher degree of flourishing than those around you who reject and work hard against that reality. Gender would be another example of that. Um, so we talked about general providence. We, we directed our specific comments, though, from Joseph to God's special providence. Remember that? A little bit different. God's special providence. We reflected on the truth that Pastor Mike two weeks ago spoke on the, the classic text of, general, of special providence, that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are the called according to his purpose. So, so we, we were taking our time to investigate this idea of special providence. We're interested in that because sitting before me, I trust, is the company of the elect, of God's people, of those who have been a called according to the purposes of God, who love the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And we are observing in Joseph's life uh, what those principles derived with the question to special providence were. Uh, we were invited. We used the concept. A concept is not mine. I borrowed it from another author. To a house of purposeful, counterintuitive wonders. Uh, when it comes to the question or the thought of us meditating on God's special providence, we inserted the proposition a very important proposition for the church, the Gentile church, who works in hostile environments, just like Joseph did. We're going to study a little bit about Nehemiah and culminate in the life of Esther. All three of those great characters were operating outside of their covenant community, outside of the place that was near and dear to their heart. And, and they worked in and through believing that God's special hand was at work in their life. But, but this proposition, if you have any hope of flourishing, and in the case of believers that's growing in holiness, growing and, and moving forward in your life, if you have any hope of flourishing as God intends, you must discipline your inner man to the powerful impact of the fact the fact of God's providence. This is how it is in heaven. You can believe that it is any way you want. God's a perfect gentleman in that respect. But flourishing is the property of those whose lives are lived along the interests, values, and concerns that exist in heaven, that are in fact real. God defines reality. He is the one who defines that. So if we're going to flourish, we've got to discipline my inner man, that inner talking voice, right? We all have that. It's always dealing with emotions, with events, with calamity, with blessing. It's always in there talking. We've got to discipline that voice to the powerful impact of the fact of God's providence. Not just matter ruling over my affairs, but ruling constantly in and through always being active. It changes the way we pray, we'll see. It changes the way we act. This is critical. We were invited off the shore of the stream, right into the middle of it. And that's what providence does. It's amazing. So this morning, we're going to look at the life of Nehemiah and Esther and to derive truth from their life. Then we're going to formulate, hopefully, some principles then we're going to share, hopefully, some accurate application. Uh, again, from Joseph, we learned that victimhood and vengeance are not the property of the believer. They're not the property of anyone who's going to flourish as God intended them to flourish.
Those are no longer choices on the shelf. We saw that in Joseph. So this morning, let's look at Nehemiah together. Nehemiah and then Esther. First, Nehemiah. We're going to look essentially at, at, a, at, a, at a short section of, this amazing, of these amazing historical events. Um, if Joseph ministers to those of you who believe you have an abnormal life, I would argue that Nehemiah ministers to those of us, remember, who we believe we have sort of a vanilla life. We are, you know, in, in, in sort of the verbiage today, we enjoy amazing privilege that a lot of us had nothing to do with. Um, my dad is a first-generation Christian, and my mom. They had, they had challenges. They were both saved late in life. And for those of you who have been saved late in life, you know with that comes a lot of turning of the titanic of the habits of your life that are so difficult because they are entrenched. They have their hooks into the very physiological reality of who you are. My dad and mom were called by Jesus Christ in their early 30s and called to be holy <laughs> and the rest of their life agonizing. And then like the Hoover Dam, providing for me, holding back the mess of those waters so that I can skip around in the valley throw rocks at the dam, my mom and dad saying, what are you guys doing? You know, my dad heroically, my mom heroically, holding up the mess of, of a life given to self-centered interests and self-centered living and uh, allowing me to actually question and the arrogance of that at times and, and being supported by godly men and women all around them. But I'm a second-generation Christian. I, 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 am, I am the example of privilege. I, I've been given amazing privilege. I was in the cradle role at church. I had truth literally spoon-fed to me long before I could ever understand even what the idea of truth was in comparison to error. So for those of us who have this vanilla privileged life, I want us to look at Nehemiah. I want us to see where do we fit and what are we supposed to do? Because Nehemiah gives us some amazing truth. You are critical, you fellow vanilla privileged individual. Critical, critical. But we've got to avoid some things. We've got to really apply ourselves. We're going to take God's rich sovereignty in our life, the rule over it, and then the rule in and through it, and use it in a way that pleases him. So we're really looking, we're dropping down into the story here, we're at verse, chapter 1, verse 11, through chapter 2, verse 2. This is at the end of Nehemiah's amazing prayer, we'll comment on that in a little bit. But Nehemiah finishes his prayer and says, O oh Lord, I beseech thee, may thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and the prayer of thy servants who delight to revere your name. And make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. Well, that this man was the king, right? This foreign king, Artaxerxes, we're given his name. And then the, then, the, then the account sort of stops, and we have this little insertion. Now, I was a cupbearer to the king. Talking about a pregnant statement that's hugely pregnant. And then this, this signals providence. We have this all through these Jewish people who are taken into captivity. We have these little statements that signify providence. Oh, by the way, 
important part of the story. I was cupbearer to the king. And it goes on, and it came about in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, that wine was before him. And I took up the wine like the cupbearer would, probably sipped it, made sure it was free from poison, and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. I had not been that way. Something had changed, verse 2. So the king said to me, Why is your face sad, though you are not sick? This was nothing but sadness of this is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. Very much afraid. A little bit of context here to the story, this historical retelling of, of Nehemiah's life. We really find uh, uh, in, in the book of Kings, uh, there had been a prophecy given to the northern tribe. Remember, Israel was divided between north and south at the time, writing in 2 Kings chapter 17. Is that my phone? Oh, okay. Not good. My phone's there, and I just, it's not in the bag. Okay, good. In Providence. All right, good. I was wondering. I, I can tend to do things like that. You'll see I wore a button-down collar today. So I'm not taking any chances. Believing in Providence, my rich activity. For those of you who watched me with my collar up all week last week, I apologize for that. Lots of comments on that. <laughs> um, but that's God's providence, right? So I did a little better. I participated with God and got buttons this time. <laughs> I'm not going to take any risks. Um, let's just turn to 2 Kings. Hey, we, can, we can read it there a little bit better. 2 Kings chapter 17. Here's what happened. Beginning in verse 6. This is predating Nehemiah's day. In the ninth year of Hoshea, now we, we look up to 17, verse 1, 2 Kings 17, we learn that Hoshea, the son of Elah, became king over Israel. So he's king over the northern kingdom, okay? So back down to verse 6, in the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and carried Israel away into exile to Assyria and settled them in captivity there in the city of the Medes. Verse 7, now this came about. The, the, the chronicler here in, in the book of Kings tells us why. Why was the northern kingdom hauled off into captivity? Now this came about because the sons of Israel had sinned against the Lord, their God, who had brought them up from the land of Egypt, from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and they had feared other gods. That's the problem. They had feared other gods rather than the one true and living God who brought them up out of the land of Egypt. And as a result of fearing small g gods rather than capital G God, they walked in the custom of the nations whom the Lord had driven out before the sons of Israel in the customs of the kings of, uh, of Israel, which they had introduced. And the sons of Israel did things secretly, which were not right against the Lord their God. More were they built for themselves high places, places uh, in all their towns from the watchtower to fortified city, under the covenant rule, there's only one place you go to worship, and that's Jerusalem. That's where the central altar is. That's where the Sekinah glory of God exists. It's only there that you worship. You don't worship in high places. This is where the pagans worship. The nation of Israel had embraced this. They, had no, they no longer feared the God of the covenant. And on it goes. Verse 18, So the Lord was very angry with Israel. Very angry. Remember, he's the king of Israel. All the kings are mere administrators. He's the chief. He's very angry with Israel. And he removes them from his sight. He sends them into Assyria. Later on, Judah will join them. Now, in the interim, the Israelites had been... Uh, uh, conquered by the Babylonians, carried into captivity around 589 B.C. However, the Babylonians were then conquered by the Persians under Cyrus the Great in 539 B.C. Five, Cyrus of Ezra's era, Ezra 6, chapter 6, verse 3, is also known as Artaxerxes of Nehemiah's era. So 
You look at Ezra talking about Cyrus and Nehemiah talking about Artaxerxes. It's the same guy. It's the same guy. But this Artaxerxes allows the Israelites to return to Jerusalem and begin rebuilding. This is really the story of Nehemiah. This is the story of Ezra. Zerubbabel, you'll know him. Uh, he's also going to uh, play an important part. Uh, we would even throw Esther a little bit into this whole grouping of Israelites who are carrying their faith into hostile territory. And God uses them providentially in amazing ways. Um, so Nehemiah will lead the third and last return to Jerusalem after the Babylonian exile. From Nehemiah's perspective, if we had time to read his prayer, and you should go back and read his prayer, the reasons for captivity were clearly understood by Nehemiah and probably by all those Israelites who were in captivity. There's absolutely no confusion as to why they were where they were. The prophecy was clear. God, in his sovereignty, had executed the terms of the covenant. It was a bilateral covenant. If you, then I will. And they did not, so he didn't. And off they went into captivity. So Nehemiah is here. He's, he's here in this place. Um, probably struggling with the question, you know, am I as helpless as I feel like I am? What value do I have to offer? I'm the cupbearer. Well, what kind of privilege? It's probably problematic for his brothers and sister Jews, and yet he's there. He's the cupbearer. He really didn't rise to that on his own merit per se. What's it for? I'm fearful. You know, Nehemiah sort of elevates the idea and argues that both privilege that he enjoyed and the feelings that he'll endure are sort of outside of our control. Does God, is God disinterested? Is providence incapable of reaching or working in and through those things that are outside of our control, that we just either enjoy or experience? And the profound answer that comes from the book of Nehemiah is absolutely... Yes, he can work through those things. And no, those are not off-limits for the God of providence. Not at all. We highlighted this idea in, cha in chapter 1, verse 11b. Now I was the cupbearer of the king. And it's almost like you pause there and say, oh, really? Oh. And the reason why you say that is because you begin to understand how critical and how privileged the position of cupbearer really is. In these Gentile kingdoms, the cupbearer combines the role of prime minister with master of ceremonies. The position of cupbearer was a key role. It provided confidential access to the king. Nehemiah tasted the king's drink, tasted the king's food to prevent him from being poisoned. Obviously, the king didn't trust any of his uh, uh, racial brothers and sisters. He went outside of... and thought a Jew could better fulfill that role. He was in an unparalleled position of trust and confidence as one of the king's advisors. We know this this is so critically important because archaeologists tell us who are doing digs that on the reliefs of these old artifacts, you're always going to find the ruler, right? The rulers were stamped all over these artifacts. But there was one other, maybe a few others, but one other particular office that was often stamped right next to the ruler. And you know who it was? It was the cupbearer. They literally have pictures of Nehemiah stamped onto a side of a piece of pottery somewhere in some museum. That's privilege. That's privilege. He's one of a few select people that gets placed on artifacts. It required, in most cases, 
that you were well connected. You know the old adage, it's not what you know, it's, yeah, this is privilege, right? Nehemiah knew some folks. Well, who were these people? Well, some argue that Esther herself was Artaxerxes' stepmom. Now, that's just what some suggest. I don't give a whole lot of credence to that myself, but it is out there. In other words, this is the time of Esther. This is the time of the beloved queen. This was a time of a woman who was connected, for sure, and probably did have some great sway over the court and what was going on. Suffice it to say that Nehemiah is not a one-off Jew just dropped here out of nowhere. No. Uh, Esther, Zerubbabel, Ezra, and now Nehemiah, all these Jews had interactions could include Daniel of old, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These are trusted people, uniquely trustworthy. It required not only being well-connected, but impeccable character. Now, we really don't know anything about Nehemiah's character at this point. You know where we really find out about Nehemiah's character is when he's dispatched to Jerusalem. And we find out there that Nehemiah is not a man who has let his privilege go to his head, are we? No, it is clear Nehemiah's character was the product of the Messiah in his life, Christ in his life, a robust belief in the God of the covenant, and he knew his place in that covenant. He understood in salvation history what the interests and values of the covenant-keeping God were. He prayed along the lines of that covenant. He was so well informed by it. Christ Messiah had forged in him a love for God, a humility, and we see in his prayer a sin-repenting attitude and approach to life. That's what true saving faith creates in you, dearly beloved. A sin-repenting attitude and approach to life. Read the book of John, 1 John. Nehemiah had it in spades. You know, you watch these movies and, you, you know, and it always comes down to one of the characters saying, well, it's just all my fault, right? Well, Nehemiah expressed that in a way in his prayer. He had that sin-repenting attitude. He had an undying love for the Mosaic Covenant. He had an undying love for his place in salvation history, and he knew it. He knew who he was. He had no identity issues. Had none. He was a perfect pick for cupbearer. The book chronicles his amazing love for the oppressed, the integrity he had, his godliness, his selflessness. He was willing to give up luxury and ease, the luxury and ease of the palace to help his people. He's a dedicated layman who has the right priorities and his concern for God's work. He demonstrates that he knows the right time to encourage and the right time to rebuke. He is strong in prayer and gives all the glory and credit to God. It is clear whatever Nehemiah's privileged position, it had not gone to his head. Why? Because he knew the reality of God's rich providence. That whatever privilege he enjoyed was the function in hand of the God of heaven. God certainly is not a God to be trifled with. He explicitly knew the covenant. They were in captivity for disobedience. But the God of providence, too, was a God of mercy, true to his word. The first principle I want to derive from Nehemiah's life is providence is not a one-off activity. It is not a one-off activity. Providence is in and through. It's like a rushing stream that never stops. This impacts Nehemiah's prayer life. You know, maybe you are used to praying for one-off events. You go to prayer and you beg God and say, God, please do X. God's people should be praying, God, thank you for already working in and through 
And I know you're all wise, and you're going to continue to work in and through. God, open my eyes to see it. God's people, we love miracle. But miracle is not the gold standard of God's answer to your prayer. Providence is the gold standard. That's what's amazing. That God has already been working in your life. God's working in your life now, and he's going to continue to work in your life. God's people recognize that. There are no accidents when providence is before your eyes. So maybe we ought not to pray so much for one-off events. Maybe we need to stop praying for miracle and start praising God for providence and learn the lessons that providence wants to teach us. And they're vast. They're personal. They can hurt, but oh, it's a good hurt. And that's maybe where we need to be. Providence is not a one-off activity. God's providence brings to privilege. Exercise privilege in line with the values and interests of your place in salvation history. So here I am. I'm a kid of privilege. I've got it all. I've had access to truth. I've grown up in the ivory palace of Christian education. I am just, I am blessed beyond measure, drowning in a sea of God's goodness. So what do I do with that? Well, if I'm wise, I take all that privilege and I begin to ask the simple question, God, what are your interests and values? What are your concerns? What do you long for? Because, God, you've given me this amazing privilege. And I want to begin to construct my life. Because I can. My mom and dad couldn't. By the time 30 and 40, they were dealing with habits and issues and consequences in your life that would literally sap a lot of the spiritual energy out of their being. I didn't have a lot of that. And I could start thinking about great things for God. You know, we were challenged that way. That's what I want to do. That's what Nehemiah did. He had amazing privilege. He knew the covenant. He knew his identity. He knew that they should be going back, and he was going to be a part. He didn't want to get left behind. In our case, we're in the church. We know our identity. We know that God's going to build it. We know we've got to get along, Matthew 18. We know we've got to go make disciples, Matthew 28. We know we've got to grow in holiness. We know we've got to do all of that. We know we've got to be unified. And oh, by the way, he's going to come back again and get us. So whatever values and interests are reflected in all of that as a church saint, boy, I want to be, I want to, I want to intentionally, with my vanilla privilege, get in there and get busy. You know, God's special providence, so God, no, it's not one off. It brings to privilege, as it did for Nehemiah, and he exercised it, and all of it, in a very courageous way for the values and interests of the God of the covenant. Inviting us to do the same. We don't serve the Mosaic covenant anymore. We serve the church. Christ is our bride. We are no longer covenantally in that sense related. Well, some would argue with me there, but in the sense of the execution of our sanctification. We don't have a pedigree that connects us. We have transformed character that connects us to Christ. That's his interests transforming your character so that you as a no, better watch your mouth sloppy fun-loving self-centered Gentile can actually have a life that's profitable <laughs> and useful this is amazing Gentiles, we don't do this we, we, we make all kinds of messes of things by just who we are you know we create Mormonism and you know we don't have to go into it all just think what the religions are today and what motivates them a lot of them just well you can you can I don't have to speak it we're crazy people but Jesus Jesus it's amazing we would argue that Nehemiah teaches us a God's special providence working among his own 
find in their faith and Christ's transformed character the grease for its wheels, if I could put it that way. Now, we're gonna, when we get to Esther, we're going to see a little bit of conniving and scheming and, and the application of just common sense. Call that conniving, scheming, you may. But, but what really is a fertile field for God's providence to richly bring us to the points of flourishing. And remember, as we're defining it, not necessarily like Nehemiah defined it, but we're defining it as growing in holiness, of, of arresting the complications of, of sin in our life, and being able to turn away from that and move into flourishing. Um, it's transformed character, Christ's transformed character, that greases those wheels. In Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 2, we have the report that, So the king said to me, Why is your face sad? This is nothing but sadness of heart. And then we have Nehemiah reporting another thing that he's not really responsible for to some degree in the moment, not only his privilege, but, but now his emotion. Boom! It just hits him. Emotion surprises. That's what emotion does. Fear grips him. Very much afraid. So what does God's providence do with emotion? Well, in this case, the wheels of God's providence pressed Nehemiah through that emotion to be used in profound ways. Providence insists that feelings are never my terminal reference point. Never. Emotions surprise. They're the human reaction to a set of circumstances. But they're never the terminal reference point. God in his providence is the terminal reference point to the question of what am I going to do with my privilege? What am I going to do? And I feel that. I still feel that today. Those of us who are vanilla... In our high privilege, we, you know, we, we, we can lack self-confidence. And, and we can think, oh, that's a little more. <laughs> no, you know, I'm just, I just like who I am, where I'm at. I've kind of got my comfort zone. I don't really ever have to get out of my comfort zone. My mom and dad lived out of their comfort zones. Every Christmas, we went back to the uncomfortable comfort zone of family and friends back in the old hometown. And it was always challenging. I never, you know, for me, it was just grandma and grandpa. Woo, you know, party, malt, shakes. It wasn't that way for my mind. It is uncomfortable. But I just kind of like my comfort zone. That's what privilege does. And, um, but my emotion can never be, never be the terminal reference point. God's providence often is wanting me to push past that and push into something else. He's afraid. We would observe and we'd be, uh, we'd be remiss if we didn't observe his prayer. Prayer prepa prepares us in an unwitting way to handle the surprising emotion that accompanies God's special providence. You've got, we've got to be a company of people in prayer. We've got to be taking all the fears, all the anxieties, all the emotions, and we've got to be laying them at God's feet. We've got to be doing with them what... Remember, our, our peculiar connection to Jesus who demands transformed character into his image. Remember, that's our covenant. That's his interest. That's what he's after. We've got to realize that's what he's after. And emotion is not the final reference point. But my point being um, is prayer. Prayer is where we work this out. Prayer is where we find courage. Prayer is where we think about who we are in Christ. And what that identity requires of me. And we confess that and pray that back to God. So if Joseph teaches us how God's providence impacts your reflection on your abnormal life, Nehemiah teaches the extent of God's rich providence in your privileged vanilla life. It is at work all the way down to my daily emotional makeup. He's interested and he's working and he's involved all the time. Finally, let's look at Esther. Turn in your Bibles to Esther chapter 2. You guys are familiar, I trust, with, with Esther's story. This is a profound book uh, in all kinds of ways. A little bit of the context of Esther 
Esther is not, at first, a historical account of God's sovereignty ruling over the affairs of men. Its first concern is the details of God's rich providential rule in and through the affairs of men. There is no mention of God in the whole of the book. There is no mention of prayer in the whole of the book. Yet God is profoundly present and active. God is the hidden hero in the book of Esther, working subtly behind the scenes, already having worked. Already Mordecai and Esther knew their covenant, knew and understood who they were. He was working. He had already been at work and would continue to be at work. Remember we talked about abnormal life, vanilla life. Esther teaches God's providence and how it collides with paralyzing personal paradoxes. How's that for a little thing to say? Some of you last week raised your hand and felt your life was full of paradoxes. Esther was a woman whose life was full of paradoxes. And they have the potential to be paralyzing in your life. Providence will overwhelm the paralyzing influence of paradoxes in your life. How does it do it? Well, providence offers... I, I just lack words for this whole message. But providence offers mega-eternal considerations... beyond this temporal life, beyond the place where all the paradoxes are known and felt, and it lifts us up high. You know that old song, with eternity's values in view, Lord? It's eternal values that reduces paradox in my life to nothing more than an opportunity to comfort somebody with the comfort I've been comforted with. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. That's what providence does as you consider these mega eternal values way outside of time, assuring your destiny. We have a living hope. So you say, well, I don't see the paradoxes in Esther. Well, look at verse chapter 2, verse 7. Esther chapter 2, verse 7. Here's, here's 2. And he, that's Mordecai, was bringing up Hadassah, that's her Hebrew name, uh, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter. So Esther is first cousin to Mordecai. How would you like that? I think of my first cousins, right? Melissa, Robert. I, if they're listening, I love you guys. Uh, Rob, Haber. I couldn't imagine being brought up by Bob Kemmer. I mean, he, he's a great guy and everything, but boy, he knew how to party. We had a good time, you know? I don't know if I'd ever learned anything. <laughs> But anyway, we have this very interesting family dynamic, being raised by your first cousin. Um, that's interesting. Um, and then, uh, 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 for she had neither father nor mother, so it's not even like they were around. They were gone. Not interested. How many of you wrestle with, oh, I wonder what my mom and dad would think and feel? now. They're gone. Now the young lady was beautiful of form and face. She was a gorgeous woman. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So note the paradox in Esther's life. Providence worked in and through her pedigree. She's going to be an amazing woman, heroic, but she providence really sort of bypasses all the potential hindrances of her pedigree, right? She has no mother and father. That generally would have disallowed her in the covenant community of really being anything special. So God rips her out of the covenant community, puts her in the Gentile world, and they could care less. <laughs> That's what we Gentiles do, you know? But she had something that Gentiles are very interested in, beauty of form and face. There's a paradox for you. No mother and father raised by your first coven against the paradox of beauty. Unless you think, oh, if I was just beautiful like Esther, it would be amazing. I don't care who my mom and dad were. I would just be beautiful. Well, 
Remember, it didn't work out so well for Vashti. Remember Vashti? She equally was beautiful. And it got her in all, you know, bless her heart. She was not going to be dragged in front of a bunch of drunken men and put on, you know, and, and she literally lost everything because of her beauty. Esther gains everything because of her beauty. It's just the paradoxes. The point is Proverbs 31. What does it say, women, about beauty? Favor is deceitful. Beauty is... Now, it doesn't mean that's not a pejorative term. It means it's chabal. It's, it's wind. It's inconsequential. When it comes to the question of God's interests in your life, it's not bad. It's not good. It's just inconsequential. A woman who does what? Fears the Lord. She shall be praised. That's the interest of providence. So yeah, I try to make myself look as beautiful as possible. I know, depending on what you have to work with, you know, that is what it is. But I know that God wants my character. He wants me to fear the Lord, and I think even some of you have appreciated that in me. And you don't look at me as a nutcase or ugly. You appreciate who I am. So this is a great paradox. So providence works in and through genetics. It works in and through pedigree. Verse 15 of chapter 2. Here's, here's some more. Now in the turn of Esther, the daughter of... So now Esther's been brought into the king. Her beauty's been recognized. Vashti's off the scene. Uh, the king wants another Vashti. Uh... You know, he's searching throughout the land. Esther's obviously beautiful and catches the eye of those who are hunting for the king. So now it's her turn to go into the king. Now, in the turn of Esther, the daughter of uh, Abihail, the uncle of Mordechai, who had taken her as his daughter, came to go into the king. She did not request anything except what Haggai the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the woman, advised. Hmm. That's interesting. And Esther was finding favor in the eyes of all who saw her. Verse 20, jump down to verse 20. Esther still had not revealed her relatives or her people, just as Mordecai had instructed her. For Esther did what Mordecai told her, just as she had when under his care. Can I say this? as a principle. Common sense is the observation of general providence over long periods of time. And it results in biblical wisdom. This was not a time for Esther to live above the rule. How many of you love to be the exception to the rule? No. Learn to love the rule. Providence pushes you outside into the exceptional rule. That's fine. But you see what she does here. Common sense taught Esther to look to Haggai, the eunuch. Why? Well, because he had seen it all. He had seen one woman come and go, one woman come and go, one woman come and go. And all these women uh, probably ignored him and thought they had creative ways to get the king's attention. Haggai, what should I do? <laughs> That's what Esther said. Humble, teachable, common sense. She'd observe God's providence, his, how things work and operate. And she lived according to that. Uh, letters, uh, next, uh, common sense taught Esther to defer to those who knew her best and had shown great care for her. Mordecai, from Esther's perspective, was heroic. He clearly demonstrated provision and protection in her life. To abandon that now would be foolish. Young people, hear me now. Your mom and dad love you. They know you, not your college professor. Your pastors know you. I mean, your, your Christian school teachers, your public school teachers don't even know you quite like they know you. Learn to love and trust them. These prime disciple-makers in your life live by the rule that God has laid down. 
if you have godly parents or godly guardians in your life. You know, it's just tragic that young people go away for, for a, a, a mere semester and all, you know, they, they change and we never have opportunity to, to speak into that. It, 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 don't do that. Be Esther. You know, be somebody who God's rich providence works in and through. Four thirteen. Turn there, and we'll close with this. There are many more. Four thirteen. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. This is at the great denouement. This is the unraveling of the whole book. And he says this: Do not imagine that you and the king's palace can escape any more than all the other Jews. We're all going to get our heads handed to us by Haman, the bad guy. For if you keep silent at this time, liberation and rescue will arise for the Jews from another place. And you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this, that famous passage. God's rich providential work will work whether you work or not. So what's the idea here? God's work is in and through all the time. But it's not in and through just in time. It pushes all the way past time into eternity. This is huge. So this is the motivation. This is the motivation, or this is sort of what happens to, to that woman. Remember her, uh, uh, Tracy Dalton? She, she's, a, she's a waitress in Canada. And she serves this man, John Steely. He's 55. He leaves this 24-year-old waitress a lottery ticket for a tip and said they'd share it if they win the ticket. Guess what happened? They won! And her life changes drastically. Drastically. They won $184,000. Dalton scored a $92,350 tip that night. Just lifted her out! She could either say, eh, Nah. Nah. I don't want to go to work today. Nah, I'm not important. What I want to do is I want to build that as an analogy to what providence is. Providence is saying, look, my interests and concerns are eternal. My interests and concerns are everlasting. My interests and concerns. And I invite you to join me, providence says. Because you need to stop living under the values, assessments, judgments, of this life and sin and death. Providence pulls you way higher than that into the values and interests of all eternity in King Jesus. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for our time together so much to say, I pray that the church, this church, Grace Church of Menor, would grip the powerful reality of the impact of providence in their life. Let us stop thinking in terms of one-off events. Lord, help us to be thinking that you are robustly, actively involved. And Lord, you love us and everybody in our life more than we could ever imagine. And Lord, we want to join this providential hand. You endow every action in line with your interests, with, with eternal significance, divine significance in that sense. Lord, gather us up, motivate us, we pray. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for your patience.